It's Monday, October 8th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 179 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for the continuation of a conversation uh, which started about five years ago with a tremendous musician who you can hear playing piano in the background named Matthew Shipp. Let's have a listen. Matthew Shipp rejoins us today to uh, get into it, and it's a good one. Today on the show, Matthew Shipp. Before we get into it, let's talk about a couple of things, shall we? Number one, uh, I want to let you guys know about some shows that I'm playing um, this Wednesday night, October 10th, I'm going to be on, uh, a pretty great bill, a pretty great evening of music that's happening in Ridgewood at a new venue called the Footlight. Clifford Allen, who I'm sure many of you know, has organized a concert. Uh, it's happening at the Footlight, which is 465 Seneca Avenue on the bill. I'll be playing solo, uh, right up top playing first, 845 followed by Tamio Shirashi, uh, Mark Edwards is doing a group, and Razor Legs with Jim Souter. Do you guys know Jim Souter? Saxophonist from Borbato Magus? Yeah. It's going to be a good night of music. If you're around this Wednesday, October 10th, come out to the Footlight in Ridgewood. Uh, the next week, October 19th, uh, my good friend Brian Chase drummer extraordinaire of Chaken Records. He and I are doing a, a short duo concert as part of a, a fundraiser for the relocation of the firehouse space. It's moving from uh, Williamsburg down to Sunset Park. Uh, it's a great space, and it's a really nice evening of music. Uh, Pauline Kim Harris is doing something, James Ilgenfritz, Dan Blake. I think we're going to be playing right up top. That's happening at the Dimena Center for Classical Music. That's at 50 West 37th Street in Manhattan. It's going to be a great night of music, and it's going to be uh, a good fundraiser for a really great venue that I'm excited to see come back. So that's the 19th. Finally, October 31st, uh, Halloween, I'm going to be in Paris playing a solo show, and I am really, really excited about it. Special Halloween show in Paris, France. Uh, I'm splitting the evening with Ensemble Economique, and it's happening at the venue Le Vent S'Elève. Uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the address, but you Frenchies that are out there listening, uh, I'm going to be in your city, so come through for a Halloween show. You can find out more about all of these shows by going to the 5049 website, 5049records.com. Uh, finally, I want to just take a moment to um, offer my condolences to the friends and family uh, and colleagues of Mike Panico. Uh, I'm sure some of you know who, who Mike was. Mike, along with Kevin Riley, uh, the two founders and, and operators of the record label Relative Pitch. Relative Pitch has only been around for not long, uh, less than 10 years, and they've put out you know 60-something releases of, of really great, really adventurous, improvised music. Um, they've really done a good job of documenting the current scene of improvised music in New York and abroad. Uh, and Mike was someone that I knew. Uh, I hadn't seen him in a while. Uh, I knew him through the Stone, 
the venue here in New York. I used to I used to manage the Stone. Mike was a volunteer there, and uh, was just a really intense, enthusiastic, um, funny, and 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 committed listener. Uh, he really loved music a lot, and he, you know, as a day job, worked as an archivist um, over at Sony Music, and he would come to my shows. He would, and and he'd always have some exciting news to share with me. Uh, he knew that I was, am a big Bob Dylan fan, and a couple times he hooked me up with some Bob Dylan um, uh, uh, box sets. He always had news of what was coming down the pipe and what to look forward to, uh, and and he kept up, you know. He always had something nice to say when I saw him. He always would compliment me on a on a recent recording or performance. Uh, and and he was also brutally honest. And he would tell you if you know he thought something you had done uh, wasn't your best. Um, and you know the news has kind of come out slowly this past week uh, uh, of Mike's passing. And you know it's it's a very sad and tragic thing what happened. Um, Mike Pinico was a great guy. He was he was much loved by by many people in the community of of New York musicians, and it's sad. It's really fucking sad. Um, I hope all of you that that knew and loved Mike are are hanging in, and and I hope that Mike is is at peace. He was a good guy. He was also um, he was a big fan and supporter of today's guest, Matthew Ship. If I'm not mistaken, uh, Relative Pitch has released three records by the great Matthew Ship. Now, for those of you that have been listening to this show for a while, you may recall episode 21, which was me and Matt Ship, recorded summer 2013, very early on in, in, in the podcast. Without question... That episode of the podcast is the one that people have commented the most on to me. It was a very candid conversation. It was the first time Matt and I had ever talked. And uh, he's not shy. And he has got a huge wealth of of stories um, and insights. And he's really funny. Uh, There was one story in particular, and and Matt kind of references it up top that everyone kind of remembers and comments on. It was a pretty gnarly story about one of Matt's early day jobs. And uh, as I've mentioned before, I'm inviting previous guests to come back and and do second episodes. And uh, Matt was the first person I wanted to have come back. Uh, He is fucking funny. And to be completely honest with you, Doing these podcasts, you know, a lot of the time I'm talking to people that I don't really know, uh, and the conversations kind of take a, a pretty prescribed path uh, and trajectory of exploring a person's personal history, their ideas. Uh, it's sort of biographical in nature. Um, but the, the conversations that I really enjoy are conversations where it's someone that I already kind of know, and we can just sort of uh, shit talk, quite honestly. That was kind of what my original idea for the podcast was. Uh, it's just not always feasible, especially when you're talking to people that you don't really know. Um, this conversation today is me and Matt getting into it. Uh, the biographical information is already there. Uh, this is me and Matt talking shit. And I swear to God, I, I, maybe I should just start a new podcast where it's just me and Matt shit. And just that, you know, goofing. I, I, I could talk to Matt every day and be completely fine with it. Um, he's got a couple of great new records out. 
a solo record that you heard up top called Zero. He's got an amazing record, a new trio record with uh, William Parker and Daniel Carter, longtime collaborators. They just put out an amazing record uh, called Seraphic Light on Alm Fidelity. Really, really beautiful, beautiful recording of, of contemporary masters. Highly recommended. If you want to hear that first conversation with Matthew between he and I in 2013, the, the famous slash infamous conversation, it's available in the 5049 archive. If you want to access the archive, become a Patreon donor. It'll, you sign up for the Patreon, create a monthly pe- pledge of any amount, and you will have access to what is now about 80 episodes of conversation. Uh, in a couple of weeks, the entire first run of the first 86 episodes of this show will only be available in the archive. So go to the Patreon, uh, do that. There's a lot of great stuff to listen to there. Conversations with William Parker, uh, Joe Morris, a lot of amazing people. And that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Check Matthew out online. Go to matthewship.com. And here is round two of my conversation with the great Matthew Ship. That said, is the entire output recording. And what's like, uh, say for instance, well tempered, not well tempered, but it's stuff like done on a harpsichord and yeah. piano, both. Yeah. Well, that that I'm not entirely sure. I got that. I saw that at Amoeba Records in Hollywood um, about ten years ago, and it was like 250 bucks. And I was like, "That's a good investment. I should just." Wow. And then I saw it last year at Amoeba in San Francisco for 15.99. Oh, really? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> to give some indication of the value of recorded music. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. So the even when I stopped the podcast, the episode that we did five years ago to this day, people stop. Oh, really? You to tell yeah, me yeah. that that's their favorite. <laughs> Just because of that one story. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, did, have people said stuff to you about that? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't regret it, do you? No, no, no. <laughs> but it's just like, wow, that's okay. So, yeah. <laughs> no. Any we... any woman ever tell you this? No. <laughs> just no. God. I, I think the audience for this podcast, similarly to a lot of the concerts, is, is pretty male-dominated. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. I okay. mean, not entirely, but largely. Right. Um, but that was, yeah, that was, like, five years is, you know, not a short period of time, but, like, lately, a day feels like a year. Yeah, yeah. Especially with that idiot. Well, actually, time moves pretty quick. But this idiot is, like, yeah, yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we had no good, how, like, uh, no idea how good we had it five years. Ago. Yeah, I know. I, I tell a lot of I, I tell a lot of progressives that that are down on, on Obama and, and Hillary. In hindsight, or at the time. In, in hindsight, yeah. Or, you know, uh, that, like yeah. Dude, I would take Nixon right now. I would too. Like, in a heartbeat. <laughs> I would take anything. I would take uh, Pol Pot. Uh, I, I was gonna say George W. Bush, but that is pushing it actually. Oh, <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, let's not misremember what a sack of garbage he was. Right, right, right. And Dick Cheney is, you know. Well, Dick Cheney is, is almost as, as bad as they get. But yeah. but this guy now, no, is, no, he's, he's really, just a burning pirate, yeah, pile there, of trash. There's nothing worse. Did you ever, you know, I, I, I don't want to be nostalgic about anything, but I had this experience the other day where I used my, my phone to call in um, like a ride share, like Uber. Right. You know? So this van pulled up and it's a share. So the van opens up. I get in the door. It's a share. Share. 
Oh, like share. People, like, oh, yeah, share. You, know, you pay like five bucks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's four other people in this van. They're all staring at their phone. I get in the van. I say to the driver, I say, good afternoon. How are you? Doesn't say anything back to me. I look at the chick sitting next to me. I was like, hey, how are you? Nothing. Nothing. And I just had this moment of like, if you had told me in 2006 right. that in uh, like just over 10 years, I would be calling a phone with a button, right. get into a van with strangers where no one acknowledges each other, right. and the president of the country would be that guy right. uh, from that show where he fires people with right. his children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be like, <laughs> yeah, no, that, you probably committed suicide. Well, I just would have said, you're, there's no way. Like, that's, you know. Right. It's pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. And things are only going to speed up. So. Yeah. <laughs> so what have what you been up to lately? Are we on? We're going. Oh, I didn't realize we were it's, up. It's better that way, I think. Okay, okay. Ease into it. What have I been up to? Well, I am, as we speak now, I am, um, how old am I? 57 years old. Uh-huh. And I am really um, centering on what makes my life worthwhile, which is basically just playing my own music on the piano and, um, you know, just getting down to to the very essentials of things. I'm trying to cut out a lot of fat in my life and yeah. get down to the very basic things that make existence worthwhile for me and what I think my gifts are to give. And you know, is, is not that, that I'm preparing to get out like to like of this plane <laughs> of this planet or anything. Uh-huh. But you know, you do start thinking a little different when you get towards what is you know this si- is this 60. is a, a new way of thinking that's that's coming. Um, I, I would just say in the past. I've been involved with a flurry of activities. So yeah. like, like, you know, keeping busy and just doing a million things is kind of juices you up or me. Sure. Sure. But now I'm trying to really, um, focus in on a few things that are most meaningful for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's that thing, especially in New York where you run into people and you say, Hey man, how you been? Oh, I just been so busy. I've been so right. busy. So it's like people kind of default. And even if you're not busy, you are busy. Yes, I mean I don't even know what busy is, man. Right, like right. if I'm doing things I love, I don't feel like it's exhausting me. Oh, uh, but but there's just so, I mean there's so much crap around. I, yeah. I mean it's, they're doing the stuff you love, and then there's all the crap around that. That's what can get exhausting. Yeah, the emails and the well everything. I mean it was so, I mean social media can be exhausting. Yeah. You gotta I mean man that shit's a cancer. Yeah, it is. It's horrible. We have to use it at times. Right, I right. dipped out. And right, I, I saw you. Dipped I dipped it. back in because I needed to. I really needed to publicize this thing that I was raising money for. Right. And that's what, you know, dragged me back in. But it's just, even like the four months like I was away from it, it it's, that's a cesspool, man. Yeah, it's a definite cesspool. Especially if you start getting into arguments with people and then you look up. Do you up, do that? Well, I, I post a lot of political stuff. Yeah. And I and then I have a lot of trolls that were fine because my page is public for some my cities. Right. So, I, you know, some days I would end up getting in fights with people and I look up and I've been typing three hours. Oh, man, that's not good. Man. And that's, you know, you can't do that. Yeah, <laughs> you just you can't, can't do that. I just click delete. Like, And I, <laughs> at this point, especially with this idiot in office, right? like family members, delete. Delete. Right, you well, know, I got some like dumb uncles who. Oh, I don't have any family members that are Trump supporters. Thank goodness. I mean, that, that would you know that I know of. The, I, yeah. I I have one cousin that I see. I don't I, I don't know. I'm not sure, but he posts a lot of photos of of rifles and stuff on his Facebook page. That man, you know. <laughs> so I don't really know where he's at, but other... I mean, hopefully not too far out. <laughs> I think, you know, I, it started when like something like Sandy Hook would happen, right? And then I had this one uncle I would see who put something like, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? Boom, out, 
Like, right. fuck yeah. you. Like, no, that, I, I, if that's your response to 20 children, first graders getting shot. Right, right. Yeah, you, like, got, to, you, you got to go. You got to go. I have no. <laughs> you got to go. And like, people were like, man, don't you think you're being kind of hard? It's like Facebook. And it's like, no, because like I've always, my whole life, that guy's kind of been a, a jerk. And now he's talking to, like, he's dismissing children being killed. Right, like, right. I don't need that. No, I, I got rid of I mean, I, like, there was some, um, when the Michael Brown thing went down, there yeah. was a girl that I went to high school with who I knew was a, a you know, hardcore conservative. But, you know. African American? No, no. Okay. But it's just somebody I went to high school with. Yeah. But she was, you know, I mean, nice person, whatever, you know. So I was Facebook friends with her. And then when Michael, after the Michael Brown killing i she said something that you know it's a, it's, it's a shame that this kid got killed but you know it's probably his fault <laughs> i was just like delete yeah she just had to i mean it's like, just where like do people no, no like, how do they divorce themselves from just common humanity right, and decency yeah. so easily yeah and a few people like that you know had to just be blocked but what what is that is that like a, i i wonder at times because i i don't like feeling angry all the time and i right. don't like feeling you know defeated so i'm like okay well what is that let me try and let me like try and understand these people right Right. And at times I feel like, oh, that's a defense mechanism rather than actually explore their own feelings about the loss of in innocent life. Right. Maybe it's easier for them to just not look at it at to all and say, oh, it, it must have been his fault right, for being right. a punk. Right, right. Well, as uh, you know, I, I don't know what I mean. I, I, I as a black male who's I, I never had a, my father's a retired police captain, by the way. So I, I grew up in a law enforcement family and was around like my father's friends were CIA and FBI people. So you grew up in like just outside of DC, right? Wilmington, Delaware. Yeah. Right. Right. So I grew up around okay. law enforcement and kind of know how to comport myself around them. So I have not really had problems myself, but I have been profiled a few times on the street and stopped once, twice by gunpoint for <laughs> stuff. You know, and, and, and luckily I know how to comfort myself and the cops realized they made a mistake right away, you know. Yeah. You know, and, and in one case, they not only went out, you know, apologizing, but they started trying to joke with me and make jokes. And I was just like, don't worry, you know. <laughs> but but just as, as somebody that that's happened to, yeah. I have no, I have, I have no, um, I have n no facility to understand people just not understanding what it's like to be a black male you know walking the street and, and having to think about that if somebody just writes that off well you know if i was stopped you know if, if i was stopped by the cops and it was innocent you know you should just be you know that's I, a crock of shit and i've had people say that to me and, and it's it's not entirely dissimilar from right. when people talk about like well if you got nothing to hide you shouldn't worry about your phones being tapped right right and it's like no you absolutely should it's right. about decency and and you know do you know mia masaoka yeah, I know her. I mean, I'm, I haven't talked to her for a few years, sure. but, but I, I do know her. Yeah. Well, she said something kind of interesting to me. You know, she she um, has a daughter who's grown and right. in her twenties now. Who's um, so she experienced raising a child into adulthood, right? And now that she has uh, a mixed race child, right, he's half black, and he you know he looks like a black child, looks like George. Like yours, <laughs> um, she's realizing. Oh, I have to raise this kid very differently. Right, right. And for her, I mean, and you know, that's not something I ever thought. I mean, obviously, I know people have different experience, but you. Well, I mean, just I mean, the thing is, if you're a black male, when you walk the street, you know, you 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 have a you walk trying to make yourself look like 
of business manners. I mean, you just like you have this sensibility. Of, I want to look like a successful person. So yeah. the cops see me, they don't think I'm a thug, you know. And it's just like I mean, a lot of people just don't realize that you have to actually think that way, and you do. Like if you see a cop car go by you, and they're getting close, you know, you start thinking they're stopping you. you know? Yeah, you know, and um, and in that moment, are you just sort of thinking about like, all right, what's my current situation right now? Yeah, or, how, just, or how quickly does like the the big picture come in. Well, no, you just try to walk and look like you're important, you know, or like, you know, like and you, that's in your head. Like you're walking to look like you, you have some big job and right. you're headed or something, you know, just like you don't want to, whatever the, the body language of, of whatever they're, they think a thug looks like you're trying to project the complete you opposite. And, and you think that way just out of like trying to get through your day without, Right, having to deal with well, and not to state the obvious, but like to have those those judgment calls be made by people like this asshole in office who's never really worked a day in his life, right? Who's never or he's a criminal himself. Who's a criminal himself? He's an right. actual criminal, <laughs> right? Like I wish people would follow that motherfucker <laughs> right, right, right. on the street. Or, or I mean, I'm not a criminal. He is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the worst crime yeah, I ever yeah. committed. I threw an egg at a car one time. Right, right. You know, or many times. Or you probably sp- spitting on the, or walking across the street, flicking a cigarette. Out I'm jaywalking. You know? yeah. I mean, like, not very bad shit. You right. Know? It's just it's you know for for someone like that, I think for a lot of people who um, who aren't in touch with that aspect of being a black person in America, right. Having a real leader like President Obama, whether, you know, is right. he as progressive as he could have been? No. No, that's not the point. Right. The point is he was able to offer a nuanced perspective right. into what this world is. Of diff- Americans experience life very differently. Oh, he said he's been profile. Of course he has. Right. After he was a congressman. Yeah. He said he was fine. Yeah. 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 I mean, so it's just it's frustrating to me because if you think about what a leader is supposed to do, right, right, I'm mean, supposed to do a lot of things, but certainly one if you're a leader is supposed to help open the eyes of the people that he's leading. Right. Well, the the racism speech he gave um, early in his when he was a candidate was one of the most brilliant speeches. Obama. Yeah. What, which what speech? A- after um, the incident, was it? I'm not sure if it was after the guns. Oh, it was after Reverend Wright. Right. After that tape surfaced and he gave that speech on racism in America, you know, that was a brilliant speech. Uh, that was really, you know. Yeah. And it just was the right thing to do at that time. Mm-hmm. But anyway. <laughs> well, so but so going back to where we started, you know, you said you're kind of trimming the fat and, and, and focusing on what enriches your life. Right. I, well, I, so I listened to the record this morning with um, – the new one with William and Daniel Carter. Right. Oh, Serific Light. Serific Light, which is right. gorgeous. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that record. You should be. It's, I mean, beautiful. Right. Uh, and it made me think about a couple of things. One is, I thought I read a couple years ago that you weren't doing recorded music anymore. Well, I've been saying that since 1999. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever mean it? Yeah, I mean it every time I say it. Yeah. But <laughs> the follow through is... Well, what, what happens is... You know, I, I have it. Things get documented. Somebody wants to put it out. I need the money, right? Yeah, I mean, there's less money in recording sure, music sure, now, sure. but there's that's still a, a source of income for somebody like myself. You mm-hmm. know, and um, it it j- j- just happens, and it's like I'm. It's like you're, I'm caught in a cycle where it just keeps. You know, it's, I'm I, and I'm glad because I'm proud of the recordings and I'm mm-hmm. documenting this 
part and I still have something to say, but um, I, I've put out a lot. I, I do think that, you know, I guess now you might as well saturate the marketplace because <laughs> there is no, you know, it's one thing when there was a marketplace to right. not want to saturate it, but now that there really isn't, or there's a, a, a largely diminished marketplace, yeah. you know, but I, I, I still feel that um, I kind of want to step back. And, well, and, what is it that makes you want to step back? Um, um, I don't want to be like Braxton with a million albums out, or like David Murray. I just don't. There's something that that I I want to I in my mind where I want to have a body of work that's succinct and to the point and, yeah. and me, and then that's it. You know, I don't I don't see the use of having th- three or four hundred albums out, even though I might be headed there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so is it a question of um? quality control or is it a question of seeing how the pieces fit together how the pieces fit together yeah and, and it's a whole i it's a whole thing in my in my head of a, a, a puzzle sure and um and is the puzzle complete or not and at times i felt it was complete but then to my surprise it wasn't so, i mean the only way it'll be complete is when you well, when you drop dead yeah and even then it's not complete because they find stuff they find stuff but there <laughs> is like you know i've said this on here before but you know i was never a huge Bowie fan. Right. Um, I am. I mean, I am. I mean, I'm a Bowie fan. Right. I mean, I just, I probably couldn't go tit for tat with you on right. deep cuts. But did you say it because you know I'm a Bowie fan? No, I didn't. But what oh, I was going to oh. say is that when he died, it presents this sort of like interesting opportunity to be able to look at it and say, well, it's all, right, right. it's all wrapped up in one place now, right. especially the way he went out, well, which yeah. was very that, methodical. And, with and that, that album is great. That album has ripped my heart out of my <laughs> it's chest. It's like, I mean, it's I don't own it. You know, I, I for some reason, I, I just never bought it because, um, you know, I, I don't know. I want to, but I heard it. It I hurts heard, to listen to. Yeah, yeah, it hurt. It does, especially since he knew he was yeah. dying, and it was, you know, put together a certain way for that reason. But yeah, but um, God, it's a great. I heard it at a promoter's house in Italy, and he and he knew I was a Bowie fan, so he's like, "Have you heard?" And I said, "No, I haven't heard it yet." I've been waiting for it because this was right after he died, and I said, "I'm waiting for like maybe." a year to, after for me to process, to process it and, and, sit with and then it. he played it for me and i sat there and i was like this is a fucking masterpiece oh my fucking yeah God. i mean separate from the context it would still be a masterpiece right 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 uh <laughs> no it's oh, it's, it's it's unbelievable right. but it is you know as a like to be able to sit and look at someone's entire thing and it's like well there's it's all here it's all wrapped up you can speculate you know people i hear people talk this shit sometimes and maybe it's true maybe it's not true about like well, you know, if Coltrane had lived into his yeah, you know, no. 60s and 70s, yeah, he people. would have made smooth jazz records. Or No, and I haven't heard him say that, but I've heard him speculate about where he would have gone. Right, in either direction. Would right, it, right, right. Excellence or right, right. embarrassment or whatever. Right. Yeah. Well, what I have to say about that is if I, 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 I think inherent in somebody's output is a subconscious knowledge of when they are going to croak. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's not going to be presented to your conscious mind, but it's to me, the subconscious is outside of space and time. So it would know the parameters of all that in its own language. And there's probably, even though everything is infinite and subconscious mind reaches to infinity, the conscious mind probably, like within the context of being John Coltrane, and as, as we record this today, it's his birthday. So yeah. it's interesting we're saying it. But there's probably a knowledge both of, when he's going to die and what the um if 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 you want to deal in the idea of finiteness 
what the finite ability of him as a language generator is. So within the context of being John Coltrane, which is his conscious mind is, is curtain in that now i mean you can make a you can make a a point that the subconscious mind and then if there's a realm beyond that is not personal it's, it's like kind of a world mind of sorts where personality as we know it on on this level gets um curtain into that that one um content that one personality in person but it, if you go deeper deeper levels of the mind it gets more impersonal where at a certain level it's just mine and it can and the idea of personality is a something that just exists on this level. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Uh I think so. Okay. Well, okay, so within the confines of being John Coltrane yeah. in space and time, um there that 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 conjecture about how he lived means nothing because A the the personality that was making music on a very deep subconscious level knew when they were gonna croak. Mm-hmm. B he didn't live longer, so it's meaningless. And if he sure. did, it, it would have been a different entity. It wouldn't have been that entity, John Cole. And I, right. I don't think he he actually would have. I, I think, for instance, Charlie Parker did what he was supposed to do, and there was no going beyond that. And that's not giving a limit to his talent. That's saying that 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 entity that we circumscribed as Charlie Parker or John Coltrane came for a certain reason, did what they had to do, and, and left when it was done and the conjecture had they lived is a really meaningless conjecture and and it and it would it would have it wouldn't have the whole thing wouldn't have blossomed in the way it did it would have been a whole different structure and they probably wouldn't have done what they did before had they known had they lived longer it would just been a whole different structure i mean i would say one thing in response to that is you know I I think it's pretty unanimously agreed upon that Coltrane was in tune with right. with with certain uh, ephemeral things that most people aren't very in tune with. Right, and that's right. certainly a large part of that music. So I think his own sense of mortality and his own sense of timeline on this planet. I think he had a much deeper awareness of it than, oh, than he, most well, people. I, I mean, he checked out the right time. For, I mean, that's a horrible thing to say. Somebody die at forty, right? Of, you know the way he did, especially you know. I don't know why Alice didn't get him to a doctor or something. I mean, you know, but but anyway, but musically, you know. But I, 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 he was at the end of his rope, and I don't, there was no. He would have had. I mean, it's funny that you said people because he, he, there was no way he could have gone out any further because I don't think he would have known how to take the music out any further. People today don't know how to do it. People will go to fucking conservatories and study his entire output religiously have no idea how to get there. there, there's no way to get to hell to take it out further f- from the standpoint of his vocabulary, or that it would have to, you would have to j- just be born in a different time and in a different, in a whole different reality. But he would have had to gone back in, and that wouldn't have worked for him, right? Know? So, um, and I don't think he would have found the bandmates that would have been right because a, a new generation, every new generation, has a a whole inherent different sense of phrasing and sound. And, Absolutely. And he w- it wouldn't have worked where he would have found a new generation of people to play with him. I mean, because they would have been, uh, as much as people tend to think in the jazz world is, like, you know, you grow up and you play with somebody older and that's how you learn. That is how you learn. But a, a new sense of something is going to be built by 
people playing with their peers because they're going to have a... I mean, those guys, you know, Jimmy Garrison and Elvin Jones and, and McCoy, like their contributions to that band cannot be it, overstated. No, it cannot be overstated and it cannot be... Uh, it would not have been able to have been equaled right. by any... I mean, Al is playing with which Coltrane is a, a thing and that has its place. But after that, it was over. It just was over. Right, and if he had populated right. his band entirely with people, you know, 10, 15 years no, younger who grew up worshipping at his temple, yeah, it the music is going to take a turn that I think would have been... Detrimental. Not, well, just not as impactful, perhaps. It, it would have been nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and that, I mean, and, and especially, I mean, and, and I mean, you know, you can, you can make the point that... Um, any band that Elvin Jones or or McCoy had, you know, they were probably there was good music, but it just wasn't as right. impactful. I mean, chemistry right. can't be, you know, again, yeah. another thing that can't be overstated is the importance of chemistry, but, and it's not something you can just, you know, you add A, B to C, and well, boom, you got well, it. Well, not only can you not add A, B, you can't, chemistry, you can't be playing with some older person and worshiping them, and the, chem, the chemistry comes by peers who think alike and are breathing the same breath, more or less. Yeah. Pierce playing, you know, I mean that, and and developing a language together, and that doesn't come from a jazz worshiping of somebody from an older generation. Yeah. It just doesn't. So. Well, I mean, on that topic, so going back to this record, Seraphic Light, that I listened to, it's a trio with you, William Parker, Daniel Carter, guys who've been playing together for decades now, right. and to me, the the record, like from from the stuff I've heard you guys do in various groups together at various times, it had like a like a new sense to it of right. of I heard a lot of patience. I heard a lot of um, a group interplay that was just like zeroed in in a way that was like, oh man, this is an important record. This you know isn't one of those like record record number five hundred where. Well, it seems like it's been it's been the 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 um the buzz around the record seems like you know i think what really makes i think it was a beautiful room we played up at tufts university and uh -huh. it was this chamber the kind of classical music hall and we you know was out a drummer so we had a chamber music vibe to it and you and, sit in the room and let the right. sound of the room come it, in yeah yeah and it was just like we played to the room and um it was just one of those nights yeah yeah so i don't but wanna... when you get on stage with those guys you look at them and they say we're gonna play some music and right you know what does that previous decades of experience, you know, how does it show up when you're sitting down to? Well, I think those guys are the last of a certain breed of people. I mean, and I speak of William and Daniel. Um, there are a certain generation there of this. We're doing this interview on the Lower East Side. That yeah. Really, of of that, you know, um, time when the '70s when they both moved here, and they, I think they both are. I, I know William's a native New Yorker. I, I'm yeah, he's from sure. the Bronx. Yeah, I'm not sure where Daniel's from originally. But I, but they've been in New York forever, and they're of this neighborhood. And there's a certain language that's been developed among those guys for years. And I'm, you know, even though I came a little later, I'm spiritually kind of with them. And um, it's just it's a very natural thing for them at this point. And and I think they're just, you know, there's no overriding um anything to it. It's just that they're being organic and natural in who they are. Mm -hmm. And that was um. I don't actually play with Daniel that much. I mean, I have over the years. Okay. I, I play with him a lot over the years. Right. But recently, I don't really get that many opportunities to play with him. But but it's been a long... You know, I, actually, he made the comment once that he thought it was very interesting. He said, I realize that you've kind of deconstructed... Um, um, I mean, I've worked with him in... Um, 
I first played with other because we had been talking for years about playing, and there were years where we just never played together. I had never played a note, right? But we had been talking about, yeah, we we got to do a project together for yeah. like ten years before we ever. So I started. I did some gigs with other dimensions in music, which is a band he yeah. was in, and then I did some things with a quartet of mine where I had Daniel in, and then we did some duos, and then I mean, but we like worked in like eight or nine configurations, and he asked us that purposeful on your because you were kind of deconstructed it and reconstructed our playing together in all these different settings i said no it's just the opportunities came up I, and i wasn't even thinking about that but i said oh it's kind of interesting you uh, yeah because um but anyway um no i mean those guys is is kind of just very organic natural thing and that's what kind of gives the ease to the album i think yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and then you just put out the solo record zero right those came out like at the same time um, there this year, yeah. yeah, 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 and solo music is still it's it's still like a big thing with me now, yeah. So it continues, yeah. The the, the excitement, the curiosity, well, the evolution. I, I, I mean, I I I feel, I I guess I, I'm feeling a lot, um, more confidence in my ability as a pianist to keep the drama going myself. So I'm, you know, in some ways feeling a, a you know, a lot less need to play with other people yeah i had a teacher when i was young his name was rob boise robert boise lowry and he's an improvisation quote teacher in wilmington delaware he's a um saxon trumpet player but he teaches all improvisational instruments and he was clifford brown's teacher oh right okay but he was i mean he's dead now old guy he used to say to me um if you keep practicing one day um your playing will get so perfect that you won't need to play with anybody else (laughs) I thought it was just, he used to say these things that were kind of weird sayings, but I guess they were um, a, a wisdom in the sayings. I yeah. Mean, that you don't, it doesn't even, like, literally, you don't even have, but he was just saying that, you know, one day your whole sense of your whole formal structural thing and, and your whole impetus will be so strong that you won't need anybody else and, and playing with other people will be a choice. You know? Was he saying that as a general concept or to you specifically? No, as a general concept. Yeah. Right. And he kept saying there was a sax player in Baltimore who's playing it so perfect that he he only does so. <laughs> and I never found out who that sax player was, but it it was just a kind of a weird thing to say. You know? Yeah. I mean, he, it's so tricky. I, I feel like there's there if, if there's any truth to that or if that's something I'd want to aspire to. Right. That there ha- would have to be an arc there because right. playing by yourself too much, I think, is very bad for the music that you're developing, especially well, at, at a younger age. Right, right. I mean, I don't, I don't think he meant that. That's what you should do. I, I thought, I think he meant right that there's at, at a certain point a sense of what you want to do will be so ingrained in your your psyche and and you'll be able to generate the whole space time of it yourself if you choose. That's what I got from it. Yeah, but um. Yeah, I was just a weird, but he used to say that a lot sometimes, and and I, in, in, in a sense, that might have been like just some sub, some CD was playing to get you to practice more. Yeah. <laughs> Teachers, I, I I realizing you know I never really took a lot of lessons or anything, but it seems like for teachers to be effective they need to work out certain tools of manipulation right right, right. you know and to, I, that's what i think that was and he would sort of ta- did he feel like he would tailor them to you like oh, i well, gotta pull ship in this direction well I, he has things he said to i mean i talked to a bunch of students and this is i studied with this other guy dennis sandoli who was coltrane's teacher are you serious yeah yeah as a kid you studied with him as a teenager yeah 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 kid yeah 
And I studied with Clifford Brown's teacher and Coltrane's teacher, yes. That's not a bad pedigree. That's like some serious jazz pedigree, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, 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 what was Coltrane's teacher? Den- Dennis Sandoli. Dennis Sandoli. Yeah, yeah. He was Pat Ma- Pat Martino's teacher. Also, um, James Moody studied with I mean a bunch of people. How long were you with him? Two years. But it was concentrated, like a concentrated two years dedicated to him, you know. Did he you, you you can you can say that he helped you break? Oh, oh, Dennis. I mean, both of them, but Dennis Sandoli was a, I mean, a big part of my life. Yeah. What was his instrument? He was a guitarist. Guitar. And what were those those encounters and and lessons like? Dennis Sandoli. Yeah. His lessons were twenty minutes. He would give you a lesson each week. He'd write a line. You kind and there was a few parts of the lesson, A, B, and C part. I'm not going to get into the all, but feel he, free. I, I'm, I'm the really next curious. week he would come back and you would play your lesson and he would make minimal statements and then he'd write out your lesson for next week and then some of it he, he would, some parts of the lesson were compositional things where you would write stuff and then he would he claimed to be able to see into your personality in the future and the lessons he would write out would would be to further you along because he could see. So, I mean, he wrote stuff, and if you got together with, you know, all his students, it was like a cult, actually, and, yeah. and in a good way. A lot of teachers are cult But in a good way. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, the lessons were the same, but he did write, it was, they were different for each student within the same framework. Uh-huh. There were subtle differences for all all students, but... um. And now, 40 years, or whatever it's been since those lessons, when you look back on his future readings of you, right. was he accurate? Well, I, I, there's no way to tell because I'm where I'm at and he wrote stuff out and they're probably, that material is definitely some part of who I've become. Right. But yeah, as, as far as the claim that he could actually see, I mean, I mean, there's no way to tell. Right, right, right. I mean, there's also, you know, but, but about- I do know that, that but studying under him was one of the most important things I've done, if not the most important thing I've done in my life. Was the hang an aspect of it? I'm talking and getting to know him was very inspirational. Mm-hmm. Yes. He had a, a life that was... Well, he was crazy. <laughs> like most people involved in this. But <laughs> but still, it was very inspirational. He was crazy. Well, in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right. Like all the best people I know are crazy. In a good way. Yeah. I know a lot of people are crazy in a not so good way. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> but, but he was crazy in a good way. Yeah. So two years with him. Two years, yeah. yeah, yeah a yeah. very intensive study where my whole life... Center. I, I I moved. I dropped out of my first college, and I went moved back in my parents' house, Wilmington, Delaware. Dennis was teaching in Philly. I would go up every week, and all, all I did was practice. And then t- um, I had a trio. You know, we do our co- I doing cocktail piano gigs at the time. Yeah. And so I would do those a few times. You know, that's. I mean, you spent you spent some time doing the cocktail thing. Oh yeah, it was a bona fide cocktail yeah you could you know with one hand light someone's cigarette while keeping well, the- I, I don't know if i did that <laughs> but i i was I, I was doing restaurant gigs and stuff planes just standards and stuff w- was that okay for you yeah it was i, I was making a little living you know, yeah even though i was standing my friend and, and paying for my lessons and yeah you know, yeah my but um yeah i mean it's what you do when you're <laughs> yeah 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 i mean well, i feel like a lot of people don't pay those dues right right you know they, they go from the conservatory to the hustle, right, right. skipping over that aspect of it, which is making entertainment for people right, right, who are right. getting drunk and trying to get laid. Right, right. Well, that's what point <laughs> is. I mean, that, that is what it is. That, that is it in a in a nutshell. Yeah, 
Right. I, I think I wish I had more skills like that. Right. Well, I was playing in restaurants sometimes where, well, yeah, they were getting drunk. I mean, that's what, yeah. I, even if it's a high scale restaurant, that's, that's what all it is. That's it, man. Whether you go to the Applebee's <laughs> right, or you go to right. Levin Madison Park, it's, it comes down to the same thing. Two yeah. things. As, as a dear friend of mine said, it's all brown when you shit it out. Right, right. One. But right. two, yeah, it's just people trying to Get make it. a little bit of money selling right. one thing for another to someone who doesn't know the difference. Right, right. So right. it's funny, man. I was, I was hanging out with Peter Evans recently, and he made this comment. I hope I don't screw it up or misattribute it. Uh, you know, I'm talking about Coltrane specifically about he was listening to some live recording. And at the start of the recording, you can hear, you know, the – bottles and glasses right, right, from right. the bar and all that stuff and the ice machine and all that shit right. and they play for like 20 minutes and within those 20 minutes they reach the absolute cosmos right you know a uh, spiritual transcendence with the music and then the piece ends and he goes right back to you know and the, the uh, you know the 20 people applauding right, right, right. and it's like that that dichotomy of like oh yeah we just did that in this right. like shitty bar right right is, is beautiful <laughs> yeah that's the interesting thing about a lot of jazz records from the quote you know, golden ages of jazz is that if you listen, especially if it's a live album and the clapping, and when you hear him clap, there's like 25 or 30 people there. (laughs) And it's just like historic, you know, recording, you know. Yeah. And something, and, you know, you hear people talking and stuff, and, you know, I mean, in some ways, nothing's ever changed, you know. Well, I mean, you know, as a, you know, as a Bill Evans fan. Right. Those Vanguard recordings are the best. Right, right. And I, I don't think they would be as good without the... Right, right. You know, in the background. Yeah, they were being really um, kind of um, not really respected. Until, I mean, if you read some of Bill Evans' things about it, like there was times in that period where they were on the bill with, like I say, uh, I, I remember him once saying he was, he was on a bill with a small group of Benny Goodman or something. I that doesn't make sense, but but I, I do. But they were just treated like shit, you know, like mm-hmm. like that trio. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't think when they were being recorded, nobody had any sense of the historic importance of you know. I wonder. But um, I mean, I know some musicians who were there. No, no, no. Currently, like musicians who no one understands their historical significance more than them. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I know plenty of people. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to go there. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm just saying that if you read the liner notes and stuff, you know, they were like, the, they were being treated like pretty shitty. You know, yeah. Bill Evans and his trio, you know, some places. Yeah. And people were treating it like, like it was cocktail background music and stuff. Yeah. And I mean, for those people, that's what it was. For right. the people that were in attendance, you know. Right. You know, hey, man, can you guys turn it down? I'm trying to talk <laughs> right. over here. Right. I told the bass player, Scott, Scott, stop playing so weird. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird. You know, I only ever really go to concerts where, like, everyone's really excited to be there for the music. Right. So when I'm in a situation where it's like the music is sort of being like subjugated like that, it's, it's almost like exotic to me. Right, right, right. <laughs> Did you have you spent much time hanging out listening to music at the Vanguard? Oh no, no. I I mean when I first moved to New York in the early eighties, I you know I used to go there just because it was. Um, well, for a while I actually was living in Charlie Parker's old house. What? Yeah. What on Avenue B? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. The woman Judy Sneed that lived there. I, I was homeless for a while, and I had met her, and, and she took me and let me live there until I found a place. When was that? In the, like 83 or 84. So she, her whole life was sort of like a, a patron of jazz musicians? 
Is oh, that, well, yeah, I, I mean, it, I, don't, I don't want to get it. I mean, <laughs> right. it, there, there was all kinds of stuff involved. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, she was cool. She had this, she lived in that house and she was managing at the time, she was managing like Mal Waldron and sort of, she wasn't Don Cherry's manager, but she was really tight with him and she was right. really tight with Cecil Taylor. Right, so okay. So I had met her through Dennis Charles. Mm-hmm. And um, I was, I was, I didn't have a place to live, and a couple. Of, I mean, I never was sleeping in the park, but, right? But there was a period where I didn't have a place, and a few people let me stay. So she, let, her kids were away for a summer camp, and she let me stay there for the summer. Okay. And um, well, and I found a place when I, you know, but so, right, 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 right. But but when I was staying there, she used to go to the Vanguard quite often, and, and they let her, you know, she let her in for free. And sure. Stuff. So I was gone a lot with her. Yeah. At that point, and um. You know, I was, um, but I, apart from that and, you know, just a few other times, I, I never made a point to hang out yeah. in, in the Vanguard or any jazz clubs, you know, like, oh, yeah. that sort. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was, I, 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 I used to go to Sweet Basil's more often. Yeah? Because people I really wanted to hear were playing there. I don't yeah. know if you remember Sweet Basil's. I do. It oh. was on uh, 7th Avenue South yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. right over there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right, yeah, like by Perry or Charles or something. Right. Yeah. I never went there as a, wait no I did go there I saw um, Sonny Simmons and Rashid Ali there. <laughs> Sonny Simmons, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which reminds me, I don't know if you know Pedro, Pedro know, Austin, Texas. Pedro, who's Pedro? He's a promoter in Austin, Texas. No, I don't know Pedro. I just saw on Facebook he put a um, something up because um, Sonny Simmons and um. Sonny Murray did his um, duo tour in the 90s. And okay. I know, and I know the guy that was the road manager for that tour. That guy, I, we told him, don't, if you're driving them around, don't do it. You know, Sonny Simmons and Sonny Murray, that, that, it, they're going to draw it. Don't do it. Wait, why? Because they all. Because they're, you know, they're really crazy. They drive you nuts. Yeah, yeah. And he did that road tour and he, he, he you know, Quit his job and moved that in New York. After that, he, the guy that did that was yeah, the yeah. manager. But did you know Sonny Murray? Yeah, yeah, I knew Sonny Murray well. Yeah, yeah, he, you know, to me, I, I saw him play a couple times and never met him. You know, I knew his playing, right? Which is really intense. You know, beautiful music. And then I saw that Albert Eiler documentary, right? And he's interviewed throughout it, and it's like, well, this guy's really funny, right? Oh, he is funny. He was funny. Yeah, really funny, right? Did you have a musical relationship with him? Um, I, I did it. How many gigs have I done with him over the years? Probably three, only three gigs. Okay. Once I played, he's um the wear quartet between um when was it when Whit, Susie left, Whit, between when Wit left and we got Susie, we had some festivals in Paris, a couple, and and we had Sonny play yeah with him. On him, and then I did a trio gig once with William and Sonny at the Vision Festival. Oh, that must have been around two thousand two or three. I can't remember the year. Uh huh. And he, Sonny, had requested he wanted to do a gig, and that was the group he wanted to do it with. So we, and then once I did a gig with um, Marshall Allen, Joe Morris on bass, and myself in San Francisco, and Sonny was there with another band, and he asked if he could. So we did a whole half a set that he sat in Jesus. with us too. So that's the only times I've ever played, but I, I've hung, I hung, I, I did the hang with Sonny a lot over the years. Yeah, and, and he's as crazy as you think he is. <laughs> I mean, he's completely unpredictable, and you know he's bipolar, so you never knew 
what you were going to get. What you were going to get. And when he was in a good mood and funny, he, he, it could, yeah, it was great. Yeah, you bust your gut laughing. Yeah, yeah. But if, if you got him and he was in a bad mood, that, that could be really <laughs> not fun. Yeah. I just remember once at a festival in Paris, he, Sonny Murray, Billy Bang, and um, there was a third person there of, of their gender, age group. I can't remember. Oh, it was Alan Silva. Mm. And somehow they started having this, at dinner, this big fight argument. And it was just, yeah. About something real or about some nonsense? Well, well it, was, it was nonsense. It was basically like who, who suffered the most or something. And, yeah. The uh, contest uh, that nobody should want to win. <laughs> yeah. And, and like nobody could win it. You know, they, uh, but, they, they both felt like they had carried the larger cross. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it just, and it just got, from there, that's where it started. It got more absurd, you know. And then it just got to the realm of pure absurdity, and Sonny wanted to take somebody outside, and, and you know, really, yeah, and, and it, you know, it just, it, it just, and then it just, at one point, it was just pure gibberish and nonsense. Yeah, 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 but loud gibberish and nonsense. And you're just trying to eat your dinner before exactly. you play. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How was the gig? Uh, well, I, we all we all were on separate gigs, <laughs> but it was you know a communal situation. Yeah, but when you we, when you did those gigs with Sonny, were they were they pretty consistent uh, musically? Oh uh, well, the one with Marshall Allen where he sat in, he was in a really good mood that night, and, and he lifted the bandstand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The gigs with David Ware were very curious because um, he had, the chemistry between he and David was was just not right. Were they kind of butting heads? Well, on? I, I don't. I, it just was off. I don't know. It was, and um, Sonny kind of took over those gigs, and it, they actually were almost kind of like Sonny Murray drum solos. Yeah, and, and you know, David has specific material, and, and Sonny steamrolled his way through it, and it just it wasn't just wasn't good. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and then years later, Sonny did an interview when he badmouthed David in the interview, and I, I could tell you exactly what he said. And it was just like he, he said, "Yeah, you know, avant garde. You had to really have form and stuff." I, David, where yeah, I play with him, you know, you can't just stick your dick in the pussy and come, you know. What? Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> he actually said that in an interview. Was David still alive when that happened? Yeah, David was still alive. I never. T- I don't think David knows knew about that. We never talked. When I read that, I was like. Oh my God, like why? I mean, uh, uh, where was the one artist? I wouldn't say it because where was a very structurally yeah, you know, aware art. And his music is not, a, I mean, he has tunes and stuff. Yeah. So I, 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 I and I know they kind of, they did butt heads a little before that, that gig. So it was just, and, I, and then it was like, why did he come back to the, I mean, like, why did he say that in an interview? Yeah, How, yeah you, you, that kind of stuff happens. And I, right. I never really get, is it? I mean, I, I you know, I way out of my league talking about this stuff. But like, is it? Is it like an? It must be like an insecurity. I, I don't. Want, I don't. Who want can to, say? I don't want to. St- Who can it, say? Sonny's mind, but he actually said that about where, and I was in an inter- in an interview in a to be read by people. To be read by people. I don't remember where interview was. Yeah. Something's. I, 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 was it back in the? I don't remember if it was jazz times or what. It, but I, I do remember it was like. You know, a couple people were saying, did you see what Sonny said about where? I was like, no. And I went back, oh, my God. Yeah. And, I mean, no, it's like, the you know, the actual crudity of the statement and, and the fact that it, it's not what David, that's not what David that's, Ware does. Well, yeah, he completely misread the situation. Right. Yeah. But, um, and then the, the trio gig I did with him ended up being, I mean, at first, I, um, I was trying to force it into a format of what, what I do in my trios and when it was obvious that 
that wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. I went with the flow and it ended up being a really, you know, kind of right beautiful free jazz gig as opposed to my my trio thing. But ev- but everyone kind of had to go to Sonny. Yeah, we had to go yeah. to Sonny. There's, yeah. I mean, you know, like, and, and, and I mean, and, and to the point where when the gig started, um, he just started playing, and I was start. I thought, you know, I was just on stage, and I thought he was just, you so, know, get, yeah, 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 get, getting. And I looked at Wham. I said, "What's he doing?" And Wham was like, "I don't know." That's that classic thing. <laughs> the people in the audience going, "Have they started yet?" Yeah. So then it was obvious that he he was playing. The gig had started. So we had to just, and then I tried to kind of introduce some of my trio. Like, like devices and and themes and stuff and, and yeah that, so then I just like go along with the flow and it ended up being a really nice thing but the gig I did with with Marshall Allen and Joe Morris with Sonny set in that was really majestic and, and like yeah well yeah it's I mean with that was that the the one with Marshall and and, and Joe that was after those other gigs had happened yeah yeah it sounds like you might have learned <laughs> how to have a good gig with him. Yeah, yeah. That, I, you know, I, that, by that point, I was, yeah, it was Sonny's really crazy. I mean, but, you know, that's it, a real, but, like. But I mean, when, when, when he was in a good mood, he, he he's a great storyteller. Yeah. The, I mean, that shit in the Eiler documentary is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. There was a, I mean, there's, you know, there's, um, I don't give a shit, I'll say it. You know, I don't know him, but Milford Graves, right. you know, who's, you know, one of the greats. Right. Uh, it's been said that when you play with Milford, you just got to go to Milford, right, right. you know? And I feel like I've seen him in enough context to see where like, oh, so-and-so went to Milford and the music was transcendent. Right, right. So-and-so tried to have a dialogue and it wasn't the best concert I've ever heard. Right. And I think there's something to be said about as musicians sort of knowing when to pick your battles and right, right, how right. to play with people. Right, well, that's... Even if they're not playing with you at all. Right, right. Well, I mean, I'm not going to... I've, I've never played with Milford. Yeah. And, you know, he's a friend. Um, I'm not going to... Well, just as, as, as a concept of... Dissect that. I, I, I would say, in his case, being older, that he has a definite, very sense of himself, what he is, and, and that's that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's one thing to look to... I, I, you know, I, I, and again... Peers are meant to play with each other. So I used to go hear the trio with Charles Gale, Wim, and Milford. And there were times where Charles and Milford were butting heads, but whenever that did work, it was utterly transcendent. Yeah. I'm not sure why. You know, because there were times it did work and times it didn't. Yeah. It's almost like. Um, Sorry, go ahead. But um, I don't know. With Sonny, it was all according to his mood, though. It wasn't like. I mean, there might be a time. I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't play. There might be a time where Sonny w- would have been a completely interactive drummer, but he was so. You know, I, I, it depended on his mood, what he had to eat. You just never knew what mm-hmm. you were going to get. Man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at some point, I wonder what it's like to to be a musician who's been working for you know decades and decades, right. and you've worked with you know some of the greatest musicians right. of the 20th century. And at some point, more of them are gone than are still around. Right. And you're still out here hitting the bandstand and, you know, right. sitting backstage eating sandwiches or whatever. Well, I, I, I can't tell you what that's like. No, I can't. <laughs> I, I, I'm just imagining. Even though, like, you know, I've played with a bunch of people that have passed on. You know, but I, I mean, I, 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 to Sonny, I, he was about, even though that, that history was there, I, just hanging around with him, I mean, he basically wanted a, a, a joint and a good time, you know. I, I, you know, I mean, the history was there, but he was kind of like, 
a storyteller, a comedian, mm-hmm. and, and you know, just in the, in the moment. So, mm-hmm. I, I, and if being in the moment is being able to tell a lot of stories about the past, the good old days, that's the and moment. That's what it is. Yeah, that's what it is. And I, I, I mean, this is just the sense I got being around him that. He was into it. I mean, he needed, got to have that joint. That was The know, joint is the crucial. Joint. <laughs> it was crucial. But again, that's knowing your, your your system. Right, right. That's cool, man. Did you read Keith Richards' autobiography? No, no. Man, I'm not even a Stones fan. Right. Uh, if you can say that. Like, I, I just, whatever, it's never been that important to me. But everyone told me this book is pretty great. You should check right. it out. And it is a really good read. And he talks about, you know, like this perception of him as being like fucked up, drunk, stoned, high all the time. It's like that's not it. He's like, you got to know you, you got to know your pace, and you just want to be right all the time. Right, right. So you don't you know open up the whiskey and down the whole bottle. Right, right. You know you sip it slowly. You know right. you might have a cigarette lit, but you're not dragging at it constantly. Right. So he is you know imbibing at all times, but right, he right. knows his limits. Well, I don't know if he knows his limits. Right. I say he knows. Well, his he rhythm. knows himself. Yeah, yeah. Did you? Did you, I mean? Did, I, did you play a lot with Roy Campbell? Um, not a lot because I don't have that many trumpet oriented projects but i've yeah. played a fair amount with him over the years yeah he was yeah he was he's someone that isn't around anymore since we last talked right um when people start That's funny you mentioned that because dave i mean i was ta- i had breakfast with william parker the other day and he was saying that um a lot of to a lot of young trumpet players roy campbell's already forgotten and lost you know he was making that and he said he actually talked to some young trumpet player who didn't even know who Don Cherry was, but who's in this music, you know, and that kind of freaked him out, as it should. Right. They're 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 into free improvised music. No, yeah, or, but, it, or, but I think it's new to them. It's new. Okay, to we'll them. Get, how old are they? This person. It was a teen. Oh, a, a, a young adult. Yeah, you know. Look, I I know I could point to very specific memories of when I want. You know, I had the record stores I haunted for years. Right. Where I'd go into the record store and I'd buy something, and the guy working would say, "Listen, man, you know, have you fucked around with Ornette Coleman yet?" No, who's that? Right. He would slap the CD out of my hand and be like, "You need to buy this first. You can't. Right, you right. can't start there. Right, right. You know, and, you know. Maybe this yeah, kid yeah. needs maybe to find their, kid, yeah, maybe their, their dealer. The vehicle for yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure William yeah, did yeah. not let him walk away. Well, William did tell him who Don Cherry was. Yeah, you need to check him out. Yeah, but he was saying that a lot of people, like to a lot of younger people, like you know, Roy Campbell's already forgotten. Yeah. What does that say? What does that say? I don't know. Do a lot of young pianists know who Don Pullen is? It wasn't that long ago that Don Pullen died. Right. I mean, I I mean, I mean, I mean, I've met sax players who've gone to jazz school that know very little about Coltrane, but they know everything about Michael Brecker. No, that's not possible. Yeah, it is possible. I, I I've I've run into that. I mean, they know who Coltrane is, but they don't really know his records or nothing. But like, they they really listen to Brecker. I've run. I've run into. I mean, that might not be a, a very few. People, sure, sure. But I, I have run into. But that's a chilling statement. That says a lot about academia and the the ghouls that are you know. I get, running I don't it. know what it says. I don't know. I, I mean, look. If you are in a classroom, if you were teaching a class, right? And whatever your point of reference, whatever your aesthetic standpoint is, if you saw someone who had this, just. Glu- huge omission in their knowledge in their in their perception of music wouldn't you feel the need to correct it rather than like well if they got my dogma they got my trip so that's right. all i care about i mean i don't know how i don't know i mean yes if i was one-on-one with the student and they had a big hole and they needed to know this to fill that hole i would point them to the way but i, I don't know 
how it works in schools. I mean, I know how Joe Morris teaches. Which is kind of more, what, holistic in some yeah, way? Yeah, it's very holistic. And Joe, you know, um, takes it on himself to make sure. I mean, he knows every student is its own their own world and that you have to tailor it to the person. But he wants them to have an overview, too. Sure. I mean, whether or not you, you have um, engaged with Coltrane's music in a meaningful way, you, you cannot look back at the 20th century as someone who's guiding young people into the 21st century. Right. And it's like, that's cool. You don't need to know who that is. Right. Well, it's just not. I, I mean, if you go to Berkeley School of Music or something, I have no idea how they do it. I mean, I don't, I don't right. know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you don't need to know who Coltrane is right. to get a gig recording I, I, jingles. Alan Chase is teaching there, and he's like one of the world's like ultimate Sun Rock Coltrane experts. So I can't. I mean, if you're in his class, you'll probably hear some shit. You'll hear some, but yeah, but I can't. I don't know. George Garzone teaches there. Yeah, I mean, and, I I think for a lot of people we know though, there is that fear of like, oh, when I'm gone, right? Like, will will my name have been written in the big book? Are people gonna yeah. check my shit out? Or well, I mean, I I don't know what. I don't know what any of that means nowadays. I mean, I don't know going forward. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's, you know, um, like I feel like we, you know, as, as participants, you understand that for the whole picture to be complete, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot right, of people right. contributing different things at different times in right. different ways. And it's, it's not just the big people that everyone knows, right. you know? Yeah, it's funny. I ran into him. Um, are, are, you're familiar with Elma Hope, right? With who? Elma Hope. No, I don't know who that is. He's a pianist, kind of between Monk and... Okay, well, he's a... Um, so here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I ran into his widow in the bus one day. And she just... Are you Matt Schiff? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, oh, I'm Bertha Hope. She's a pianist herself. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, wow. So, you know, I'm like, great to meet you, you know? So we start talking and... You're familiar, are you familiar with Hassan Ibn Ali? Yes. Legendary Hassan. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well... Only uh, more recently have I right. become familiar with him. Well, the legendary Hassan... Um, is Elma Hope was his favorite pianist. Oh, and he's, wow. And he's an extension of Elma Hope. Okay. And um, I was talking to her. You know, Hassan died penniless in an insane asylum. Yeah, with one record under his Yeah, name. with one record. Yeah. But like in talking to his widow, there was a slight bitterness that Hassan is, um, you know, a cult figure underground. And, and, you know, and more known than Elmo, even though he came out of Elmo. And I mean, it's just kind of, I mean, we were actually, I actually kind of very put that up front. And I, I said, I mean, does it bother you that like there's this kind of, kind of cult with Hassan because he was crazy and, and more people know his name than Elmo? And she said, yeah, it does, you know. But, but I mean, we're talking about somebody. We're talking about, I mean, not to belittle the situation, but <laughs> right. you're talking about the difference between like five people and 10 people. And well, it's, more or less. I mean, yeah. But, but my point is, right. it's like you're talking about such a hyper-specific strain right. of music and musicians. Right, right. And... I mean, of course I understand the frustration with something that should receive more recognition. Right. Well, you didn't know who Elmo was. Yeah, of right, course. Right. But, but we're already starting from the perspective of, like, the great Hassan being, like, the big shot who overshadows him. When, like, right. nine out of ten jazz fans probably don't know right, right, the legendary right. Hassan. Right, right. Uh, let alone the fact that in his life he died painless in an insane asylum. Right. And never even had a gig. Because he was, he, was, he was really crazy. He was actually crazy. Yeah, he was really crazy. And he yeah. used to... Um, he would never, there was nobody even in Philly that would hire him. And he would, any way he got to play in public, he would go to a club and he would run up on the stage and push the pianist off and then play for like a minute before the bouncers got on the stage. Man, if you're doing that, you deserve to be known. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> There's a few musicians I wouldn't mind kicking off the bandstand and playing. Right. Well, he didn't do that because he, 
hated what they were doing. He just went. You want to play? He wanted to play. <laughs> so that, but anyway, I mean, and, and then, you know, Max Roach went up to Philly, got him, and made that one album with him. Yeah. Under Max's name. Right. <laughs> it, well, he probably had to do it that way to right, get the record right. recorded. Right. But, um, and that's his only album. And, um, you know, he never made a penny from music. And because he was so crazy, there's a slight, very slight underground buzz to it. And as you said, for every, maybe for every one Alma Hope album, there's five to 10 Hassan albums that have sold. So, yeah. Right. So, yeah. But anyway, that, you know. What? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, however history decides what it wants to take with it, you right, know, right. who can say? Who can say, right? Who can say, you know? And there's certainly will never be a shortage of older musicians looking back saying, oh, you guys got it all wrong. wrong you need right, to check right. out but right, that, right. that, that, and me. Right, right. I've run into that. I mean, I've run into some older musicians that are rock blues musicians that hate Jimi Hendrix. Sure. And think he's a complete fraud. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. I, could, I mean. I, 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 and they're, and you know, basically like they're blues guitarists that are older guys, you know, that. Yeah, man. You know, if he wasn't doing drugs and part of the acid scene of the '60s, man, you know, nobody would have cared. You know, I've run into. You can rationalize it however you want. Right, right. The real, the real thing is, is like, is Hendrix's music transcendent and utterly original? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> did it? Did it fucking destroy the walls of the right. houses in which it was being played? Yes. Yeah. And that's right. the important thing. Right. I, I've tried explaining that to them, but you know, if they're if you're older and, and bitter, you have to have friends around you who bring you back down to earth when you go out into that that bitterness. Right. Well, it's funny because um, um, one of the musicians that you mentioned, and I, I know, <laughs> is really funny about that because he 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 does he I, I've co collaborate with him a lot. Yeah, I I've done a lot of performances with him, and I'm I'm pretty close to him in some yeah. ways, and he always has a sense of humor. Great sense of humor. A great, tremendous sense of humor. One of the funniest the people I know. I know. Yeah. But, and he is kind of bitter, especially about a compatriot of his who he hates. That, you know who that Who's is. Who's no longer around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is great. But, man, it can be, he's so funny about it, man. Yeah. Well, it's, to me, there's a weird charm to it. To yeah, like, there is. That, like, oh, you, you're always going to have that thing, you know? Right, right. And it's just kind of like how you deal with it. You could be bitter in the corner or you could be bitter with a sense of humor. And right. have you, do you play with him? I have. Oh, cool. We made a record. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's an important guy to me. Yeah, no, he's my one. I love him. Man. He's, to me, honestly, uh, and, <laughs> you know, feel free to, you know, email me, Simmerman at gmail.com if you want to tell me I'm full of shit. But as far as sax playing goes, after Coltrane, I think he's kind of the guy who's gone the furthest uh, well, we with a said, unique we language. We have said his name, but... Evan Parker. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Right. Evan but, Parker, I think, has gone in more, uh, a farther direction with a personal language on the tenor and soprano sax. Right. More of the soprano. Well, he definitely has his language and his way of yeah. approach, and I I thoroughly enjoy his musicmanship in many settings and I, I enjoy playing with him I, he's a blast to travel with too because he's so funny he's so funny man. he and, taught me this thing I, I, I did a tour once where, where Evan and um, Hans Benick was on and the two of them together it was, I mean I was, we were just cracking up yeah. the bus kind of yeah stuff. your stomach hurts from laughing <laughs> yeah. so hard he uh, we were that we played this gig and before the gig oh. he 
like little shit, man. And when it's someone like you respect, right, like, right. I mean, I hold Evan in the highest regard. Yeah, I do too. Um, he's like one of my main guys. He's one of my, I don't want to say idols, but he's one of my favorite living musicians. No questions asked. Right. You know, I find it's very hard for me to find flaw with it. And we were about to do the gig and I was, you know, honestly, man, I was nervous. Right. And we said, well, you know, let's get like something to drink before the gig. And I started ordering a beer and he stops me and he goes, Never before the he, 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 he was wine before the gig, beer after. Right, and I was like, "Yeah, man, I'm gonna carry oh, that I, shit." I didn't to the know gr- you had a relationship with him. Oh yeah, he's. I mean, I haven't talked to him in a while, but right, right. I, I adore my right. relationship with Evan. Oh, he's funny. He's a. He's so funny. Yeah, just little stuff he can say sometimes. He can actually be. He's like William Parker. Yeah, in the sense that they can actually say little stuff that's so cold sometimes, like. If they're going off on somebody, but you don't really, I mean, they're trying to be like polite and you don't realize. I mean, you think back about what they said. It's like, oh my. He said this shit one night. Um, this is so funny, you know, because he and Peter Evans have a very close relationship. Yeah, they're very tight. Yeah. And he did this to, you know, break Peter's balls. You know, this is years into their relationship. They were it was at the Stone, they were playing. And um, two nights later, I was going to be playing a trio with Evan. It was during his residency. It was going to be me, Nate Woolley, and Evan. Right. And um, I'm sitting there in the audience, and Evan at the end of the gig is introducing the band. Right. You know, this is Peter Evans on trumpet. This is Oak Young Lee on cello. And then he points to me, he goes, This is Jeremiah Zimmerman. I'll be performing with him uh, on Sunday with Nate Woolley, who's a much better trumpet player than Peter Evans. (laughs) (laughs) And the whole fucking place erupts in laughter. And uh, and he looks at Peter, he goes, Don't mind my British humor. And, And Peter says, I thought British humor was supposed to be understated. Right. Oh, that, that story. I once did a gig at the Stone, a duel with Evan. Uh-huh. And I got this. I, do you know um, the Blucky Foundation? Yeah. I got a grant from them, right? Okay. And it, I didn't know. I mean, the, the the person that runs the foundation had called me. And it's asked, one dude. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He had called me and asked me, like, if I gave you this money, what would you do with it? And I said, I don't know. I'd probably do a recording project and pay some money down on the credit card. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I, I didn't realize, and he had been, you know, I, somebody had told me he was thinking of giving me this grant, but I didn't, um, I, you know, I put it out of mind, like, and I didn't. Yeah, yeah. So that night of the concert, I was there, and I knew Blucky had paid for Evan to come over and mm-hmm. had kind of was sponsoring the tour. So somebody said, do you mind if he introduces the band? And I'm like, you guys. And I'm like, no. So he did the introduction, and he goes and presented me with, the, you know, the award for the check and stuff. And I, I was like, whoa, it was right before the concert at the Stone. So it was a $15,000 grant, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, And Evan goes to the microphone. He goes, um, you're going to start out solo? It better be a $15,000 solo. <laughs> 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 <I'm just waiting. laughs> There's a lot that I could say about that. Um, I'm glad Evan had the good sense of humor. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. That's really funny, man. Well, you know, you compare it into William. Another way he and William are similar is there these details that they hang on to in their memory. Right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I happened to be, um, I was, he, Evan and Ned did a duo concert this past April at this gallery on Bleecker. Right. And just before the gig, um, uh, someone came up to Evan and said, hey, I just want to let you know that Cecil Taylor just passed away. Right, right. 
I heard of it. I heard that he dedicated the concert. So, so yeah. they that he and Ned spoke real quickly. They started the concert. Uh, Evan said, "You know, we just found out that Cecil Taylor has passed away, and Ned and I would like to dedicate this this performance to the to the memory of Cecil Taylor." And he shared a story. Uh, I don't know if you know this about Evan, but his father growing up was an airline pilot. No, I didn't. So know. he was able to come to New York at various times for free, right. And listen to jazz music, you know. In New York. Right, right. And he told this story about uh, seeing Cecil Taylor in the for, late 60s on the, on Bleecker Street, just a couple blocks right, from... Right, for the first time. I think, I think for the yeah, first time. Yeah, I think he's told yeah. me that story, but what... But the, this, the way he told the story, like, you were there. Right, right. You know, you were there with young Evan Parker in the 60s, you know, fumbling down Bleecker Street to hear this music for the first time. And storytelling, going back to the thing, if there's anything I... Th- one thing I find really important as a musician who's getting older and like, you know, I'm still not old, but you got to be able to tell a story. <laughs> you mean playing or? It's just in the hang, man. Oh, the hang, right, right, right. The hang. Right. Well, some musicians are very quiet, though. Yeah, and they're not the fun ones to be I, around. I, 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 I mean, I, I, I don't, obviously, I didn't know him. I, I would assume like Eric Dolphy probably wasn't. I, I could be wrong. I don't know. Well, he, I don't think he lived long enough to, <laughs> to, to amass the great stories. Right, right. But, um, you know, I mean, it's. I mean, I. I don't know how he is. I once had dinner. I was in Istanbul, uh-huh. and um, I was playing a festival there. So I'm at the table in the cafeteria for dinner, and um, Farrell Sanders was there. Who else? Andrew Hill, oh, Butch Morris. Oh God, and somebody else and myself, and I think Butch and Andrew did. You know, Farrell Sanders sat there for like an hour and a half, ate dinner, didn't say one word, not one, Sounds not right. past the salt, nothing. <laughs> he just like ate, and it just ate his dinner. That was sat it. Sat for a while, and not one word. Huh. <laughs> but Butch and Andrew were going. Oh, Butch was talking. Yeah. Man, I miss Butch. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Did you play with him much? No, he was a close friend, but I only played with him. Never a concert. Once I went over his apartment, yeah, and he on cornet, we just played duos all afternoon. Like you know. he was another East Village guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to see him, but uh, I never actually um did it. We we talked for years about. You didn't even sit in on one of his conductions. No, we talked for years about me doing us doing a project together, but it yeah. just never happened. Yeah, yeah. Think about all the projects that have been talked about and never. <laughs> right, right. But it just he never. man, I played with Butch a dozen times oh really and um the last time i played with him was really unpleasant well i i mean one reason that's one reason i even though he was a friend of mine I, you know I, I used to drink a lot back yeah. then. i stopped drinking i had my last drink in 99 but like i used to hang out a lot at night and i used to see him in bars and stuff and when he was drunk he was could be really unpleasant. well see my experience was always in the bar if you run into him at zebulon or right. over at uh, like um Mona's or whatever that bar is up by you. Right. It was a blast. Right. You know, he'd be bumming cigarettes. He'd be cracking jokes. Right, he'd, right, you know, right. I mean, just. But I, 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 I mean, I, I used to hang a lot. And sometimes I'd be with him after bars closed, like four or five in the morning. And, then the... and I'd be with like Butch and John, I don't know if you knew a poet, John Ferris. No. Dave, David Hammond's the sculptor. Okay. And, you know, a bunch of guy. And I, I saw but sometimes after four or five in the morning when you see people's real stuff come out. Oh. I, I, you know, I, I saw some ugly stuff back in the day. Yeah. yeah. So you've been off the booth since 99. Yeah, yeah. I haven't had a drink. I, I used to be a heavy, heavy drinker before that. Yeah. But, um, I, I you know, and I know stories of, of Butch, people in Butch. I mean, like, I'm, you know, really close with Matt Maneri, and I know that they had some really ugly situations when Matt was playing. 
I mean, my thing with Butch was that, you know, I watched him cut other people in the band down really, you know, in humiliating ways. And I never got any of it. Right. And then the last gig I played with him, literally the last five minutes of the gig. Right. He humiliated me on stage. Right, right. Like, and I, to the point where my first instant, I just got up off the chair. I was just going to walk off. Right. I sat back down. I didn't play a note for the rest of the gig. And then we get off stage, go backstage, and he come. And I was, I mean, furious. I was like, "Man, just get the fuck out of here! Just get the fuck out of here!" I was seeing red, you know. And he came over. He's all right, man. Great gig. (laughs) And he shook my hand. And I didn't say anything. I said, "Man, this is like we don't have a shared objective reality right now because, you know." And every time I saw him after that, it was cool. We smile, laugh, and it was all good, you know. Um, But it was like, oh, okay, you know, we just. That didn't mean to you what it meant to me, obviously. Right, right, right. Well, I know he tried to humiliate Matt Maneri. If he, and I, I can imagine Matt just sitting there smoking his cigarette and just like looking past him and not even, like, yeah, just, yeah. But I, I mean, I, from what I heard, I don't think I, I, I think I probably have talked to Matt about it. But it, it was more even than just humiliating because it, there were other. I mean, there's st- stuff. You know, there was other aspects to it that uh-huh. just was not cool. You know, sure, sure, <laughs> and, sure. And um, you know, I, I and I, I just saw stuff like that unfolding with other people involved with, and people that he was close to too. You know that, and I just decided, you know, I'll keep saying, yeah, we got to do a project one day, but uh, you know, yeah, what? Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, you know, unless the money was so big or, or like I somehow had a hand in being. You know, I'm I'm not going up in this cat's world. I, you know, I admire his sure. work when it's at its best, right? But I, I'm not gonna. You need to be on equal footing with. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm just not gonna get involved with it because you know, I, I know that the, especially and I, and people like that, the more you respect them and and give homage to them, the more they'll take advantage of you because mm-hmm. it's really like they got. There's a lot of older musicians that they got you in a psychological. Vice, they know that you really respect them a lot, so they're really gonna come. You know, well, it's. I mean, they've got all the upper hand in yeah, their relationship, yeah. and and I, I, you know, I, I, I found that I, I was just interested in working with people when I was younger, as a that that like really wanted me. Not, I mean, I think Butch did want to do a project, but sure. but that really wanted. I mean, David Ware and Roscoe Mitchell were both really good situations for me because they were very cool people. And I'm not saying Butch. I mean, Butch was the most charming person you could yeah, meet, meet in a certain yeah, yeah. in a certain t- way in a certain part of the day. But I, I mean, with David, it was a real um, fruitful thing for both of us. You know, and with Roscoe. You well, know. sometimes you got to meet people at the right time. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, you can have experience with someone because you encounter them at the right time. That is very different from a lot of other people's experience. Right, right, right. You know, and but I, I, you know, I, I just, I, I used to like hanging with Butch. He was fun to hang with. But you know, yeah, I, 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 he was fun to talk music about, and he was fun, to, you know, go over his house, listen to records together. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I remember a few days spending like all day just going and listening to records and talking. You know, man, about it's stuff. yeah, yeah, it's great, man. The East Village still, you know, I remember. Um, I've always, you know, done this thing. If I'm like really kind of like getting bent out of shape, I just walk around in the East Village. Right. And you know, you always see people. Right, there's right. someone you can stop and say hi to or someone you don't even know who they are. Well, but you, like, oh, oh, there goes Kiki Smith. Right, or, there used to be a lot more people. Yeah. See. That's, that's kind of not what it used to be. I mean, I used yeah. to hang out at night. I mean, 
I used to, like, in the bar, I used to hang out, like, you know. Which bar was your bar? 7B back in the day. Well, 2A was my bar, but I, yeah. but back in the early 80s, it was 7B. But on any given, I mean, like, I remember in the 90s hanging out there and Courtney Love being in, in there. And, and, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking more socially now, not like a musician you talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. About, but just, like, you know, Courtney Love would be there. And, yeah, you know, I remember once somebody put on him. Um, Teen Spirit, and she's like, "Let's have a second of silence for Kurt." And everybody's like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was their response. That's yeah. amazing. And then I saw her walking down Avenue B, really drunk, a couple times in the middle of the street with a quarter of Budweiser. You know, that's then that's great. Right, right. You know, there's still a bar like that, and it, it went away. Max Fish closed. Yeah, I, and I, then, I used to hang out at Max. Fish. Well, they reopened Orchard yeah, Street, yeah. and they're actually doing it. Right, it's but, but, always musicians hanging. Well, I, I think a lot of hip hop people hang out there. A lot of hip hop people. I, I know LP hangs. Well, out. LP's girl, her fiance, is a bartender. Yeah, there. and yeah. he's there all the yeah. time. I, you know, I did an album with him. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. LP's, but, but I, I know. I mean, I don't hang out there anymore. But I know Beans and LP hang out there. And stuff. Beans hangs out there. Uh, Danger Mouse, but also like yeah. a lot of improvisers. You know, they do a great series in the basement. Oh, really? Of improvised music they that do? is like. It's At my, Max Fish? It's my favorite place to play in Manhattan. Oh, really? Wow. It's I know the owner. I know her. Uli. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I didn't know she's... Really? Uli brought... You know, a lot of people don't know this, but Uli is one of the nicest people yeah, she's in great. the Lower East Side. She's one of my... She was one of the first people to bring Peter Kovald to the United States to play. He would stay with her. Really? Yeah. She's known Peter, Peter Koval. No, I I know her really well. I yeah. didn't had no idea she had any connection. Next to time this you music. see her, ask about Peter Koval. And I, I know. I mean, Peter was a really good friend of mine. Yeah. I, I, that's. I got. I'm going to stop in there tonight and ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, you know, there is always, and then a lot of the cats that work there and have worked there are great musicians. Right. And so they do a series once a month in the basement. And man, when you go, they'll do like four or five acts, all really different stuff. You know, right. all improvised music predominantly. Right. The place will be packed. It'll be 35% women. Right. People oh, of color. Like, it's a real, like, mix right. of people. And they're, like, they're into it. Right, right. You know, you know the, the sound isn't great, you know. Right. The bread's not great, you know. Right. The playing and the hang is as good as you're going to get in, you know, this dystopian, you know, right, Trump's right, right. New York. Right, right. Wow. Wow, I didn't know she knew Peter Cole. Yeah, yeah, they knew each other many years ago. She, um, She's deep. Yeah, she's I know. like an East Lower East Side Oracle. Yeah, yeah, no, I know that. Yeah, right. There's a lot of oracles, man. Right. I feel like you're one. You know, I, I see you out walking around sometimes. You know, I've been in the neighborhood for. I know a lot. I've, I mean, especially since I used to really hang out. But going back, to X, going to get you men's from Max Fish because I used to hang out there when it opened up. On Love though, 1989. Yeah, and back in the early 90s, it was um, the alternative rock scene, like the Matador scene, was yeah. really. I mean, the guys from. Um, Spent John Spencer's Blues Explosion. They used to hang out there all the time. Did and you know him, or do you know him? I used to see him around. I mean, I knew people on that. La- I knew the owner of the label. Yeah, Trill. You know, I knew him, and I knew people that worked up there. Um, but I, I, I knew. I'm really good friends with Sean Marshall from Cat Power. Yeah, she's a really close friend. I just, yeah, I just ran to her the other day. She's not living in New York now, but she was in. She playing a lot. Oh, she has a new album out. Yeah. Okay. But um, I used to know all the Matador people, and that there was a scene there. You know, I mean, all they they used to all, and a lot. You know, the um, um, what's that band? I can't remember the name. Oh God, I can. From that period of time. Yeah, yeah, from that period of time. There was another the big Matador band. I I forgot their name. Okay, there, but he used to hang out there all the time. It was, it's a band, but there it's one guy was the lead singer. Not Frank Black. No, no. Um, 
Anyway, but anyway, there, there, there was a real scene there, and that was like um, of all c- cross section of people. Yeah, and then it, people used to w- just walk. Like Bob Dylan walked in there and went and hung out. One yeah, night. man, no, it's the real thing. Like you go in there. Yeah. I was in there the other night, um, and my friend, you know, Patrick Holmes, clarinetist. No, amazing. Check him out. Right, right. He just made a record with Daniel. Oh, um, okay. He's behind the bar bartending. Really, Ryan Sawyer's DJing. You know, Ryan. Yeah, he's out. <laughs> Ryan DJs there. Yeah, they're in Union Pool, you know, and then I, you know, I see people. I'm saying, "What's up?" And then there's yeah, this yeah. crazy guy, this old guy with like a kilt and like pink stockings, who you know was like passed out on the couch eating potato chips to refuel to get up and sort of dance around the bar. It's just yeah. like it. Somehow they're they're maintaining that old that thing that thing. Right, right. That's like oh, well, yeah, I gotta, this is, this I gotta is stop I in to. there a few nights because a friend of mine. I don't know if you know him, Glenn Booth, red haired guy. He hangs out there all the time. I probably recognize him. Right, he's a painter. Okay. And um Wow. No, wow. it's deep, man. It's deep. Right. Are you uh but you're set, you're in these village, you're not going anywhere. I don't think so. I don't plan to. Yeah. We have rent control, so <laughs> I mean unless I hit the lottery or something, you know. Yeah, but even then, where are you gonna go? Uh there's places to go. If I was really rich, I I'd I'd go to Midtown and live on the upper floor somewhere and never come out. You would do that. I'm a recluse. Yeah, but you would do that. You would straight up get the if, if get I the have, get the Steinway inside the apartment. If I have big, big money, yeah, I'm a recluse, man. I'm a, I'm, yeah. I'm a recluse. Yeah, yeah. You get the big, the 57th but, floor. But now I can walk around the Lower East Side and sort of be like, not not that I'm old, but I'm an older guy that's seen a lot more than a lot of other people, yeah. and I kind of know a lot about the history, the, 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 a part of the history of the neighborhood in a certain time period, and like you know, you know, I I can walk around. As a sage of sorts, you know. Yeah, that's important, man. It's just like I, I feel like I need you in the lower well, east side. I don't know if you need me. But no, I do yeah. because as I get right. like, you know, the, I mean, granted, these people are like family to me, and I've known them my entire life. But um, two days ago, Anne, who was the last surviving daughter of the Russ and daughters' daughters, right, passed away. Oh wow. Um, you know, she was ninety-seven years old. Right, right. But it, more and more, you know, I look around this fucking neighborhood where I've spent my entire adult life. And it's like, oh, these people that are coming in, they don't know the first goddamn thing. Yeah, like, and Fetterman right. and was a giant of this neighborhood. Right, right. You know, Russ and Daughters has been here through it all. Right. The junkies in the seventies and eighties, the artists in the night. You know, what I mean, like, right. yeah. I mean, I used to hang when I first moved here. I was hanging out in the Bosky Ed Circle. That's what I'm saying, man. Right. Like, <laughs> a lot of giants have strode these earth, right, these right. sidewalks. So I was, and I was really hanging out in that circle. I could tell some stories, but you know, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, I, the East Village is most comforting to me when I go out and I walk the streets. You know, whether I'm going to hang out with Zorn or if I see, you know, Threadgill pass by, right. if I see Kiki Smith pass by, like you see the like. The real East Village Giants, right, you know, right, right, right. and it's like it brightens me up. Oh, it's funny. I was in a Starbucks recently, and I'm, you know, I've kind of like since I'm getting older. About ten years ago, I I got a financial advisor and started yeah. putting money away. That's to good, man. Invest. So I've I've got really into investing, right? And I'm I'm really close with my financial advisor because not only I mean he's actually he used to be the lead guitarist in um this um in Billy Callahan's band. He's a used to be Sean Marshall's boyfriend. Okay, um, smug, smog, I think. Okay, and he's like it was in an underground pub. Yeah, yeah, he gets it. Yeah, and, and, but he's like a banker who, who's a financial advisor. Yeah. So I was with him in Starbucks, and we were 
just talking about a couple of investments. And there was this young girl there. And we're talking and she comes over to us and she goes, I hear you guys talking about stocks and stuff. I, I don't know why you do that. You, I, don't, I don't know if you understand the neighborhood. You live in the, the East Village. This is an <laughs> artist neighborhood. And, and she goes, you know, a lot of people couldn't even in this neighborhood can't even afford there's young artists here. They can't even afford a cup of coffee. So it's kind of piggish for you to come here. And she goes, you know, I don't know if you understand the neighborhood you're in, but there's a lot of real artists that live in this neighborhood. So why are you talking about investments? And what, and what did you say? And I'm just looking at her and I see my friend looking at me. He goes, you want me to tell her who you are? And I was like, no, just let her go. And it was just kind of. So you just said, thank you for your insight. Yeah, I said, okay, I'm sorry. We didn't realize what we were doing. <laughs> That is amazing. I know. It was kind of funny. Man. That is great. And I went home and told my wife. She goes, that fucking cunt. You should have like really like like told her A, to mind her own fucking business. And B, you should have told her like who you are and who you hung out with over the years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. That is the East Village 2018. It's like it's just wrapped around itself. It's like a, the right. snake that's like swallowed its own tail to the point of right. like you're being mocked by the trust fund kid right right for not understanding the plight of you right right yeah that is fucking good yeah, man. Yeah, so i'm almost 60 you know i put some money away the last few years so i won't die broke and you know i paid more dues than you ever like even know about yeah that is so good <laughs> and are you uh I, I i guess we'll start wrapping it up but right. are you do you have tours and shit coming up yeah, yeah, I got some stuff coming. You're in good shape with the 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 tours and the, the oh, records. I'm a hustler. Yeah. So I managed to. Is that is that an adaptive skill? Like you've had to. Well, nobody's ever given me anything, so I had to. I mean, if I would have moved to New York and they would have been here with open arms, you know, like you know, you're the new Marcel. Uh, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. Right. Whatever. So you know, I, that's never happened. So I've always, even at this point, which I, you know. I have a worldwide name now, and yeah. yeah, I still had. I I still find that there's people that in the business. Not only are there people that don't return my emails if I send. <laughs> there, there's been situations where, say, I played a festival 15 years ago, and I look at their literature, and, and they have me in their literature as like them having as presented. a prominent guy who has played. And, and I, I'll email them about an, another gig, and they won't return my email. You know, yeah. That, <laughs> That's I got to tell you, Matt. That's comforting for me to hear, right? Because <laughs> there there are days where I'm like, am I like the least responded to cat in all of email? <laughs> right. So I mean, you know that that happens sometimes, yeah. And um, you know, but I mean, the thing is, I you know, I got work, but I hustle. I hustle. You got yeah, yeah. And I if I didn't, I mean, if if I didn't hustle, would stuff come through? Yeah, some would, but I I don't. You know, I I, I do know that you put a lot of seeds out there and sometimes it's two or three years later where it comes That's back. That's it, yeah. So, you know, I'm finding that, well, I guess what I'm saying that with with my name as, as you know, I mean, I, as, I don't want to say big, but as out there as it yeah. is. And I still find that I had to really hustle and I do because I have bills to pay. And yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm responsible. I want to pay my bills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Matt Ship. Right. Thank you for coming back over, man. Okay. This was awesome. All right. All right. That was Matthew Ship. Round two. Hope that you guys enjoyed that. He's a he's a good dude. I really like Matt a lot. He's a neighborhood guy. We talked about that for a second, didn't we? 
you want to find out more about Matthew Ship, and I suggest you do, go to MatthewShipp.com. Check out his new recordings. There's a solo piano record called Zero, and uh, the trio record with William Parker and Daniel Carter. Seraphic Light. Go to the 5049 website. Uh, check out that Patreon. If you want to hear the first time Matt and I talked back in 2013, that's how you're going to do it. And uh, I hope to see some of you guys in the next week and two and three at these shows. This Wednesday at the Footlight, October 31st, Paris, France. All right. Talk to you guys next week. Bye.